So last week, we talked about how the Gospels begin. Talked about how there's just two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, that actually talk about the birth of Jesus. So Matthew's Gospel begins not with the birth of Jesus, but with the genealogy of Jesus. And that's, that was important for Matthew, and we'll talk some more about why that is important. So our text today comes from the chapter of Matthew, verse 1, verses 17 through 19. generation from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. So we are looking at Christmas through the eyes of Joseph. So we're, we're talking about the genealogy. So um, this was important to Matthew. So, so Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels, writing actually to a Jewish audience. And for the first century Jew, who your daddy was, was really important. And so uh, genealogies were important. And so Matthew wanted to provide a genealogy uh, for a couple of reasons, I think. But the first is Messiah was expected to come from the house of David. And so it was important for Matthew to, to meet that expectation for the Jews that Jesus does in fact come out of the house of David. Now, in this case, it, it's via adoption of Joseph, right? But that's why he's writing this. Now, I'm going to not uh, read the whole genealogy to you, but I, I would suggest maybe that you go home and read it. It's, it's interesting to read. And what, what makes it particularly interesting is that there's names of four women that appear in this genealogy. So we read in the, in the first text that we read today, what was verse 17, that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations uh, from David to the um, Babylonian exile, and then 14 from the return from exile to the Messiah. Now, if you read carefully, you will see that the last third of that, there's really only 13. But this goes from the peak of Judaism during King David to the sorrow of the Babylonian exile and then from the exile to the Messiah. So that's how that's structured for us. But Matthew includes the names of four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. We know that as Bathsheba. Now you look at those four names, and 
I'm not exactly the most astute Old Testament scholar, but I certainly could pick four names of other women in the Old Testament that would be better than these four. I mean, these four girls are kind of like the bad girls of the Bible. So Tamar seduced her father-in-law because he failed to live up to a promise. Rahab, she was the prostitute in Jericho that you've been reading about in your grand sweep a few weeks ago. Now she helped the Jewish spies. And then you had Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who was so faithful to Naomi and was able to attract the king Boaz. And she became married to Boaz. And then you have Bathsheba, who really did nothing wrong, except she was the object of David's lust, in which he was um, having an affair with Bathsheba, really, if you read, sort of against her will. And he went so far as to have her husband Uriah killed. Interesting lot that Matthew chooses to lift up to be a part of the lineage of Jesus. Three of them weren't even Jews. Two were Moabites, and I forgot what the third is. And Bathsheba was married to somebody who wasn't a Jew. What do you see in these four ladies? You see that they're outsiders and that they're sinners. Well, people, I got to tell you, that's good news for me. Outsiders and sinners. In Matthew's genealogy, we get a little, a little preview of who Jesus is here for. I mean, Jesus didn't hang out with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He hung out with the sinners and the outsiders. So, so Matthew, in adding these four women to this genealogy of Jesus, is giving us good news. This Messiah is coming for you, the outsider and the sinner. That's about the best news I've heard all year. So take a look at the genealogy. There's, there's good things in there. Don't, don't read it like Mike Tyson reads the begats in the Old Testament, kind of like going, yeah, 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 yeah. Take a minute and really read them and think about why those women might be there. So this text that we read, you, the reader, know more about what's happening than the subject in this case. We're told in the scripture that Mary has become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph has no clue that that's happened. Next week, we'll, we'll read the part where the Lord comes to him in a dream and says, hey, don't worry, Joe. It was, came from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but at the moment, Joseph doesn't know that. And so we read in this text that he is going to dismiss her quietly. Now let me just remind you sort of what first century Jewish marriage stuff kind of looked like. So the first part was an engagement period. 
And you could be as young as eight or nine and be engaged to marry somebody else. It was kind of an informal agreement between parents or a matchmaker to say, little Johnny and little Susie, when they're old enough, they're going to get married. Things could change. People could die. People could move away. So it wasn't really a formal agreement yet. So it was just sort of the plan, right? And then there was this formal engagement period. And that's for the Jewish, the first century Jewish person, that is like married, but not quite. And it actually becomes a contract. There were things signed between families, and and there was a dowry that was paid from the groom's family to the bride's family. And some scholars will tell you it was basically the cost of a house. Because your family were your workers in a lot of cases, right? And so the bride's family was losing a worker in the bride because she goes to the husband's family. So that's the part of the dowry. And then there's a part of marriage that's past that period of of the betrothal period, they call it. And really the betrothal period was there in part to get the husband to have time to build a house, to make a place for them to live. And then you get to the married part. So Mary and Joseph are in this betrothal part. They're married, but they're not really married. But in the eyes of the law, they're married, and the only way out of this is a divorce. So I told you when we started talking about Christmas through the eyes of Joseph, that there's not a lot in Scripture about Joseph. We have to kind of read between the lines. And in this text today, we get a great example of what Joseph's character is. So so he is made the decision that he is going to dismiss her quietly. So let's think about this for a second. So remember, Joseph doesn't know that the Holy Spirit has been at work here. So can you imagine what that conversation between Mary and Joseph was like? Um, Joe, I got something to tell you. Um, uh, I'm pregnant. But don't worry, it was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't another man. I mean, how would you react if you were Joseph? We know that this conversation did not go well. Because he's going to dismiss her quietly. Joseph is not buying what Mary is selling. It's only when the Lord comes to him in a dream and says, hey, wait, this is all part of my plan, that Joseph gets on board with this. But we get an awesome glimpse into the character of Joseph and his decision to dismiss her quietly. I mean, he could have made a big fuss. I mean, the the truth is, by law, he had the right to have her publicly stoned in front of her parents' house. Now, scholars will tell you that first century Jews weren't quite that barbaric, and that didn't happen very often. 
But, but what we see is Joseph just kind of letting it go away. There was a way he could have done it if he'd made a big stink where he could have made a claim to get his dowry back. But he didn't. Joseph is a righteous man who is concerned about Mary. And Nazareth was not a big town. It was a small place. And no matter how this plays out, if Joseph dismisses her quietly or he has a big fuss about it, guess who the talk of the town is? Joseph and Mary. I don't think people have changed so much from the first century. They'd be walking down the street, or Joseph might be walking down the street by himself after letting her be dismissed quietly. That's him. He was married to that girl that got pregnant that said it wasn't a man. It was the Holy Spirit. People would have been talking about that. I don't think we've changed so much. I mean, the old men at the gates, when Joseph walked by, I mean, men don't gossip at all, right? So these old guys at the gates would see Joseph walk by and they'd go, hey, that's Joseph. He's that guy. No matter how this turns out, Mary and Joseph are having to endure some things. Mary and Joseph are ordinary people. God sets about to do extraordinary things <coughs> through them. Ordinary people God is using to do extraordinary things. Even as the mother of the Savior of the world, and Joseph, the adoptive father of the Savior of the world, they're going to endure a lot. A lot of being made fun of, a lot of stuff. But here's the Mary and Joseph recognized that they were a part of something bigger. This wasn't about them. This wasn't about how they felt about it. It wasn't about the inconvenience that happened to them. It wasn't about the fact that they were gossiped about at the town gate. They knew that God was doing something bigger through them. Ordinary people, God is using for extraordinary things. That's you. You are ordinary people, and God wants to do extraordinary things through you. When we gather as a church, we gather online as a church. We're ordinary people gathered together. And I believe that God is calling us as a church to do extraordinary things. Extraordinary things in this community and extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. God wants to use you and you and you, 
ordinary people in extraordinary ways. Will we have the courage to be like Mary and Joseph and say, it's not about me? It's not about my wants. It's not about how I feel. It's about the extraordinary thing that God wants to do through me. And it's about the extraordinary thing that God wants to do through AUMC. Will we have the courage to make sure that it's not about us about how we feel, about what we want, but that we are allowing God to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. So how can God use you, an ordinary person, in extraordinary ways, just as he did with Mary and Joseph. Let us pray. Gracious God, that you can take us, ordinary people, and do extraordinary things. Father, we just stand amazed. Father, you have a calling for each of us. Help us to hear it. Help us to know it. Help us to have the courage to say yes. And help us as a body of Christ to say yes to the extraordinary things that you will do through us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.